Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Heather Perkin. It's April 18th, 2023. We're at Elk Cove Vineyards in Gaston. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, the first question to get you started is why wine? Why wine? Uh, well, I was, I'm Australian. I was living in Australia. Uh, at the age of 16, you need to kind of make a decision for your university. You need to make a decision for your high school subjects so that you can then get into the correct university class. Uh, initially, I was thinking business, but my dad pointed out pretty quickly I didn't have any business subjects, so that wasn't ideal. Um, at that stage, Dad was developing a vineyard, so we were living on the vineyard. Um, he was developing it. I was getting to know the other growers in the area, and um, I was participating in... Um, tastings at the local winery. It was a very new area, Paracuda wine region um, on the border of New South Wales and Victoria. Um, through that, Dad suggested, why don't you do viticulture? And I thought that would be a pretty neat, neat job going in the wine industry. People seem to travel a lot. Uh, everyone I was meeting in the area, it was their third or fourth career. So I thought, well, why don't I just jump straight into that career? Uh, it didn't occur to me that a lot of them were making their money from previous experiences of doctors and... And, and lawyers, but anyway. Um, so I thought, yes, I will do viticulture. Uh, I worked one really hot summer with my dad and I melted very fair skin and I just, I couldn't handle the heat. It didn't occur to me I could work in a cool climate. Um, <laughs> so again, dad said, well, why don't you try winemaking? And I said, yep, that'd be great. I'll give that a go. By now it was year 11 and, only, and you're supposed to have already kind of be set in your subjects. Uh, I needed chemistry. I didn't have chemistry. I dropped that one pretty quickly. So in year 12, I was doing year 11 chemistry just to get the basics. Um, but still, I got into the um, got into the course at Adelaide University for winemaking. I did a bridging course. Um, I met two of my lifelong best buddies um, from doing that course who were great support through the degree uh, and still to this day. Uh, I got to my fourth year and that was the first time I'd actually been in a winery and I was really nervous. You had to do an eight-week placement and I was just hoping I hadn't wasted the last four years of my life um, on a very niche degree, just winemaking. Um, but I loved it. Uh, I was, that was at Domaine Chandon in the Yarra Valley and I loved everything about it. The camaraderie, the really long hours, everyone focusing on the one task, making awesome wine. You kind of put the rest of your life on hold and you're just your own little bubble. Um, I loved it. It was, it was amazing. It was a huge relief. <laughs> um, and then finished up the degree and then um, that was pretty much, I was set. I had huge plans to travel the world and become a winemaker eventually um, somewhere in the world. That was my, my main goal. Before we get to that, tell me about the education process for you. You mentioned it was, it was quite a bit of education before you actually kind of dipped your toe into the actual work. So tell me what, that, what the university process was like for you and what you learned about wine at that, at that stage of your life. Um, so the first, it's a four year degree at Adelaide University. Um, and the first year, I, I referred to it as the culling year. It was all science. We were on the main campus, didn't touch any wine. Um, did your biology, your chemistry, your f a little bit of physics, math. Um, and yeah, you're in huge halls with 200 students who are doing all very different science degrees. Um, so the second year, we finally got onto the Wait campus, which is where they do all of the um, winemaking courses. And you get to dip your toe in a little bit. And the very first... Um, class I had um, with a professor who said, I hope you all like cleaning because that is basically what you are going to be, glorified cleaners. Um, and that was, that was a good realistic uh, thing to say to us. Um, we started to do a little bit more of wine um, introduction into wine classes, um, but it really wasn't until that third year where we got to make a little wine on campus. Um, my team made a Sangiovese and a Semillon, nothing at all that I make today. Um, and that was amazing because that was paired with um, making wine and then starting to do the, the tastings around the world. Um, I also got myself into the wine club 
on the on the tasting panel so we could um, do more tastings and get more exposure. Uh, and then that fourth year was a bit of a blur, but once we got finally into the, gosh, uh, it was quite a few years ago, um, got into doing the internship um, and like physically realizing what it means to pump rack, what exactly it presses and how it functions. That was super, um, super exciting and interesting. Um, the whole course kept me engaged the whole time, but that first year, the culling year, that, that was a lot of, that was a bit of a slug to get through all those science classes. You have to earn your time in, in winemaking. You do. <laughs> so and on the on the kind of the the less formal education part, you mentioned tasting groups and things like that. Tell me about starting to develop a palate and starting to develop an understanding of the world of wine. As you were nearing graduation, did you have sort of favorite regions or favorite varietals or, or places you wanted to, to go and make wine? Um. I'd say it took me quite a long time to develop my palate. I definitely did not have it at the end of my four-year degree, um, potentially because I was an 18-year-old at the beginning of my degree, um, and just mainly tasting in the tasting groups. Um, I think I was a little bit biased to Australia. Uh, I was really excited about Cabernets from the Coonawarra, Rieslings from the Clare Valley. Um, I was aware of wine around the world, but I really hadn't had a huge exposure for what I know today. Uh, and as for traveling, uh, having worked at Domaine Chandon with an international, it became really clear to me that if I was going to travel the world, I would need to be at a winery that spoke, someone at least spoke English, because I don't speak another language. And if you, from my experience, if you cannot communicate directly with the winemaker, you're cleaning drains. You're not doing um, a huge amount of fun work. Um, so for travel, I had just assumed it would be, um, yeah, English-based countries. I really did want to go to France and try Italy. I have not done that yet. Um, so I, I was a little limited, mm -hmm. which is kind of how I ended up up here. Um, I finished my degree and went and worked in the Barossa Valley at Elderton's and made amazing, or participated in making amazing um, Cabernets and Shiraz. Um, but that was only a four-month period. And if you don't have a full-time job in the wine industry, you need to act like a surfer and follow the season. So I just completed the Southern Hemisphere harvest, so I need to do a Northern Hemisphere. And I was chatting with a friend at uni, Dan, who had gone to uni with Dan, and he mentioned that he was going to come to America. And I was like, yes, English tick. Uh, okay, so where in California are we going to go? And he goes, no, we're going to go to Oregon. And I was like, oh. I don't know where that is. He goes, it's just above our, uh, California. Okay. And then I went, okay, I'm looking at the map. The Willamette is huge. Which section are we going to? And he said, let's go up to the north. And I just randomly was at another event and bumped into someone who'd already been here. And he suggested um, some places to apply to because I didn't know about winebusiness.com back then or even where to look for jobs overseas. Um, and so I just sent off my resume to the six places and um, Elk Cove was the first one to respond. And I had an interview on a Friday morning. I was late for my shift, but it was my last day at Alton. So I remember texting the um, winemaker saying, I'm going to be a little bit late. Um, had my interview. I was um, hired on the spot and they wanted to give me the weekend to think about it. And I was like, nope, nope. Lock me in. Uh, I need to get my visa. I need to get my passport sorted. Uh, like things neat and tidy and organized. So let's get going. Um, so I got to rock up to my last day at Alton's and say, hey, I'm I'll be fine, I'm gonna head over to, uh, to Oregon in September. And um, I came here for the harvest in 2005. I still remember the first drive up Olsen Road where the winery is situated. And it was so green, it was so overgreen. You were like walking, driving through a tunnel of greenness. And I'd never thought of Australia as not green. Um, but since coming to Oregon, there are so many shades of green. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's mind boggling and um, I remember the, the next time that I went home, I was like, wow, there are so many shades of brown. I had no idea we were so brown in Australia. Um, but back to the first harvest in 05, it, um, it was incredible. It was, um, sorry, 04 was my first harvest. It was pretty wet. Um, well, it seemed wet to me, again, coming from Australia, it's all different perspectives. Um, it was a small team. Um, there was three of us hired in addition to the normal staff, the full-time staff, and, um, I loved it. I was amazed at how um, how green it was. Um, the Pinot is just coming from Shiraz and Cabernet from the Barossa. I was thinking, oh, 
at that time, Australian pinots are pretty thin and light, and I was blown away instantly by the depth, the colour, and the flavour intensity of the pinots. They, um, they truly are amazing, and really enjoyed the staff and the team here. Um, following this, I got a, um, a job, because again, it wasn't full-time, needed another job. Um, I went to Saracen in Marlborough, in New Zealand. Uh, I was at that stage quite keen to try and get a permanent position in New Zealand. That's a very tricky thing to do. There are a lot of winemakers graduating in um, New Zealand and Australia and a lot of us do want to be in New Zealand and there's only so many jobs available. Um, at that stage uh, I got a call from Adam saying that the assistant winemaker who had hired me had moved back to New Zealand. He was a New Zealander with his wife and that they were trying to get the same crew together from 2004. Would I come back? I'm like, yes, this is going to look incredible, my resume. The one place two times in a row. I'll, um, this will be perfect for getting a f next full-time job in Australia. Uh, I came back. Um, Adam's sister, Anna, uh, who's now full-time on the staff, had just finished doing her Peace Corps, so she was going to work Harvest. Uh, Adam's niece from Australia was on a gap year, so she came and worked Harvest with us, Sophia, and then our VP of um, Sales, Shirley, was going to come in and work Harvest. Um, so we were an all-female team in, um, in the winery, and then, or part of the winery, and then we had Jose, our full-time seller master, who's been here for longer than myself, uh, running the sorting table. We got the vineyard crew in to assist with the sorting table, and they did the barreling, the pressing. Um, and yet, we were still a little short-staffed um, that year, and the office staff would come in on the weekends and do, uh, I remember Rob and our CFO and his wife would come in on the weekends and inoculate for us. The tasting room staff would come in and do punch downs in the evenings. Um, it, it was a pretty amazing experience. Everyone was all hands on deck. Again, it reminded me of that first harvest where we're all in our little bubble. We all had the one goal and um, we were all focused and it was just such a great team spirit. Um, so at the end of that harvest, or nearing the end, Adam asked me to come on as assistant winemaker. Um, he, part of the deal was I'd stay at least two years because they were going to pay for the visa. And I said, again, yes, this will be great. I'm going to be totally hand-hunted for um, a full-time job in Australia. This is going to be so good. I need to have that full year experience. I've done a lot of jumping around. This is really going to cement winemaking for me. And um, within a month, I met my now husband, so I um, ended up getting going through the green card, getting married and, and whatnot, and um, so since 2004, full-time since 2006, I've been here at Elk Cove going on 17 years. Morgan so. Wine just grabs you and doesn't let go sometimes. Yeah, pretty much does. <laughs> For me, anyway. <laughs> uh, tell me about, you mentioned the first harvest and your first harvest here in 2004 and your impressions of it from a kind of the, the camaraderie and the hard work and the one goal. Tell me about the, your impressions of the actual work of, of making wine. What, what did you think about after your professor had told you you were going to be a glorified cleaner? Uh, what did you think about the actual work of, of harvest and making wine? Hmm. Pretty amazing. Um, pretty incredible. You can bring in a, a raw material, this, these beautiful con um, bunches of grapes and you just do a little bit of destemming and then you get it in a tank and just how careful you need to be with pinot because you don't want to disrupt those seeds. Those seeds can, um, they don't ripen at the same rate as the pulp like they do in Merlot, Shiraz or Cabernet. So you don't want to get that green tannic character in your wine. So just the fact that there are so many different things you can do for different varieties, though I'm very familiar with the Pinot Noir ones um, and not so familiar with the other varieties. Um, nuances having worked with Pinot for 17 years but um, just that there are such simple things that you can do and yet they can have a, a grand effect so um, pumping over through a screen so you don't get those seeds um, churned up in the pump using a diaphragm pump so you're not even churning you're just gently moving them um, the cold soak is always an amazing thing to me they you get the color and all these other goodies coming out of the skins um, Yeast, yeast is amazing. There, um, you know, one yeast is not, not all yeast aren't the same. Some can really emphasize fruit. Some can do more structure. Um, some can be fairly neutral. Um, and whatever you pick is going to influence those grapes. Um, I often tell people that it's it's my job to shepherd those grapes to bottle. Um, the vineyard crew 
for Pinot Noir anyway, you need to do at least 11 passes. A lot of it is hand done. We're not um, with our hillsides set up for a lot of mechanical action. So there is so much tender loving care done in the vineyard. And on top of that, Mother Nature can do what she likes. And she does. Um, so you've got all of those effects and influences happening in the vineyard. And then in the winery, I just need to keep it moving along smoothly and, and shepherd it to bottle. And um, it does amaze me. I sometimes get caught up with all the logistics, um, especially as we've grown and making sure we're ticking all the boxes that um, I really do have to make myself pause and go, hey, this is another year. This is, an, this is another fresh start. Every year is a fresh start. And to really sit there and enjoy it. And um, I really do enjoy thinking, well, what if we did do something different? What will be the effect? And um, I seem to have a little bit more bandwidth these days to be able to think about that. So we're, I've been playing around with a yeast and cold soak to see what could that do? Could we do less sulfur? What, what effect does that result in? Um, so yeah, I, I really do enjoy the winemaking. I love that I can put it into bottle um, with it before the next harvest. That's what we do here at Elk Cove. And then I don't sell it, so I don't really need to think about it. Then I get to refocus on the next year and what did work last year, what could we try this year? And then of course, it's never the same because then Mother Nature does her own thing. And so what you did last year isn't necessarily going to pertain to this year because the grape is different. Mm -hmm even though it's from the same vine and the same block. And I, and I love that. I love that every day is different. Every year is different. Um, every now and again, it's okay to have two days in a row that are the same. But the, um, the randomness, the flexibility, the variety of my job is, um, is pretty amazing. And I don't think I would have got that if I had gone into my business. Um, you mentioned uh, when, when Adam called and offered you the assistant winemaker job, you were thinking in terms of seeing the full year of wine, which we hear a lot from people who have done harvests, but they've never seen the rest of the kind of the rest of the year. So tell me about that experience of seeing the not harvest parts of the year. What was that like the first time through and what did you find sort of appealing or concerning about the, the sort of the not harvest parts of winemaking? When I first started, um, it was harvest is intense. And then um, it kind of slows down for a bit, but all of a sudden you've got to get the whites ready for bottling. So you need to stabilize and making sure they don't throw any hazes for the consumer if they leave their wine in the freezer for too long or they leave it on the back seat for their picnic and it gets too warm. Um, that period is kind of intense. You get a little, little, little break um, while harvest is winding down and then all of a sudden we're trying to get to bottle in January. And I hadn't anticipated any more like peak points. So all of a sudden you're sometimes working six days a week because you have a bottling date and it needs to get ready in time. Um, and then bottling happens and that's early mornings to clean the line. Um, and then the bottling team, um, Seller Master Jose runs it with the vineyard crew and they do an amazing job. And as of um, my role here, I don't just typically have to do much on the bottling. So then I get a little bit of a, a little bit of breather while I'm working on the next wine to get ready. Um, and then once the whites are done, you get another little break. And um, we, then you start working on putting the red blends together, which is amazing. Um, that's the glorified part that everyone thinks winemaking is all about, where we go through and we taste barrel by barrel and, and look at what grouping of barrels will make the perfect blend for the consumer. Um, that is definitely a highlight um, for me for, for the year. And then... Um, then you get another little break while they're all getting racked because I don't participate in the racking for me personally. Um, the team does that. And then, then I'm blending and I'm cross-flowing and then again, we're back to getting ready for bottling again. Um, so I was surprised at the ups and downs. I had this vision, harvest was intense and then the rest of you is smooth sail sailing, which it is in retrospect, but there are definitely peaks and valleys. Um, that was definitely in the early days, but at our um, capacity right now, it is pretty much solid medium intensity for the rest of the year. Um, so what you don't see at harvest is that stabilizing, the blending, the cross-flowing, and the bottling, and all of the um, critical points of bottling, making sure your sulfur's right, your CO2's good, your o o O2's good, um, good as well. Um, so that's, that's the fascinating bit, seeing it go all the way through. And, and when you do have dull, um, lower 
um, pressure points. That's when you're catching up on your paperwork and do you have all your SOPs in and have you done your ordering for the next bottling round? Um, so putting it all together and seeing the big picture um, was what I was really keen to see and how you do all the timing of all of that so you don't drop the ball on ordering glass or, or forgetting a blend or um, whatnot. So tell me about your, your role then, take over as assistant winemaker and you, and you stay in that role for a while. So tell me, tell me about how that role, how, you, how long it took you to feel comfortable in that role and how it sort of grew and evolved over the years as you got comfortable, Adam got comfortable with you and as the brand was growing. I think it took me at least two or three years. I feel like I like to slow and steady is my, uh, is my style. Um, I remember my first day, um, I had to go back to Australia to get the visa and then I came back on January the 6th, 2006 and I, um, I was living with Adam Carey and his kids for the first month while I tried to figure out where I was going to live and I remember rocking up, they'd already started bottling and they didn't need me for bottling everything and being prepped and I was like, oh, right, so w what do I do? I've always been told, you know, today this is what you're doing and it was the first time I was like, oh, I get to decide what I'm doing. What should I be doing? Should I be doing something? And um, I remember going through all the cupboards and cleaning out all the old chemicals and then I was like, oh, there's a file. Let's go through this file and just organizing and tossing out what wasn't relevant. And then once I had the lab all sorted, I was like, okay, well, let's start cleaning tanks and scrubbing inside outside. And I just kind of kind of like if you're moving into a house, you get everything spring cleaned and in order and then you figure out what the next task was. So I think it took um, a couple of years to figure out what the swing of the routine was. Um, I didn't appreciate how thick my accent, so it took a, people a little while to get used to what I was saying and I was very grateful to have um, a boss who was married to an Australian, so he was quite easy to understand me. So I think it took a while for everyone to know um, what I was actually asking and for me to learn how to ask it correctly for them to understand the answer that I needed. Um, and then just going through that calendar year, um, I think by the fourth year I was starting to do some of the ordering for bottling. Um, Adam was is very good at um, pushing us, giving us challenges and, and feeding us new information. So it was, I think the first year was just getting used to working um, with the team that was already here, Adam and Jose, and then figuring out how I could help. Um, I love cleaning and quality control points and tightening things up. So I think that was my main role for the first couple of years. Um, about six years in, I was um, made associate winemaker. Um, by that stage, it was just as we were expanding into two new buildings that we had just built. So by that stage, we had doubled in, um, in size. So um, again, those first six years was just getting the SOPs sorted and figuring out space and organization and color coordinating things was my big thing. Um, so I think slow and steady was, was the trick to it. And then by the time I was associate winemaker, I was starting to take on all the bottling ordering and all the barreling ordering and, um, and still the organizing. The whole time through, I've always been hiring the interns and training them. Um, so as we expanded in production size, I just kept getting more jobs. Um, and then we had the second brand, Pike Road, come on, um, officially launched in 2016, but with 2015 wine. Um, and so that was another layer to the part. So though my role has slowly expanded, so has the company and the challenges. And um, yeah, I just kept getting fed more, more um, tasks, more duties. Um, so it has never been a dull time in my 17 years here. Um, the company's expanded threefold in production since I've been here. So it's, um, it's always been challenging and exciting. Um, and again, still never, never a dull day. Talk about that growth a little bit. Obviously, that's uh, as you're in it, that can kind of be hard to maybe see sometimes. But as you look back now, tell me about sort of handling that level of growth and scaling all the things you were doing. Um, were there were there major shifts you had to make in either your work or in kind of the the, the yearly work of the team, or was it did it feel more gradual than that as as things were growing? It was definitely gradual from 2006 to 2012. Um, 
we had all the production up to for the first two years in the main building, which was super tight and cramped, um, which at the same time made it very easy to know what was going on because it was all in one room. And then I remember when we um, moved all the red production into what we called the red zone, which was our warehouse. And I remember thinking, oh, how am I going to like keep track of two rooms? But then we did the two room um, situation for another six years. And then when we built the um, the additional two rooms, so all of a sudden we had three rooms because um, the um, the red zone that we called became just a barrel space, so we went fermenting in there. When we expanded to the two big rooms, Big Red and Little Red, I was a little nervous. I was nervous about interns walking too much, trying to find things. Um, I spent quite a bit of time going, okay, how can we replicate um, bucket trees in each room and cleaning supplies in each room and and where should we have all of the red additives versus the white additives if we have them in one spot everyone's walking too much um, I really like to organize things so it was a really fun task for me um, I visited other wineries that's the one amazing thing about Oregon um, and I say it only because I, other areas might be the same, but I don't have the experience of having worked there. But in Oregon, um, I can always call um, a fellow winemaker up and say, hey, can I come and check out your facility? How, how, you, how do you cope with three different levels? Lambleson, for instance, has three different levels. And I remember doing a tour and I noticed they had cleaning products on every level. And they're like, yeah, we can't have people walking up and down the stairs wasting time. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. So taking little little tricks that other wineries are doing, I pull them together. Um, but thankfully, that first harvest in those two additional rooms, um, 2013, um, was a, a smaller crop for us. And we had this huge space. We didn't actually utilize it to the capacity we are now. Um, so that was a nice ease into it. And then, of course, we went POW in 2014. Um, and then the last few years we've really gone um, with a power with our largest yields. But it was it was definitely gradual. Um, and walkie-talkies are amazing. Keeping all the interns easily accessible, me and them, um, has been amazing. But definitely gradual. Um, and just making sure I have enough time to kind of nut it out. I do like to nut things out, but with my team and with other winemakers. You mentioned blending as being kind of a highlight for you. Tell me about developing that skill. Uh, obviously, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of experience and a lot of talent, I guess, to, to to blend properly. So, tell me about developing that skill and finding sort of your part of the 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 elk cove taste. What what elk cove is going to be? What's your role in that? Um, so I don't remember before 2009, I don't know if it's selective memory, um, so I can't recall how Adam and I did it the first couple of years. I, I want to say that Adam pretty much just let me at it and went, okay, these are the skews that we need to do. Um, in the past, I would taste barrel by barrel, you give it a go. Um, and I think I must have gone through several rounds of tasting all the barrels, put this blend together, uh, not quite, try again. Um, 2009, I remember like really owning it and a couple of my blends that I put together, Adam was like, yes, that's it from, from round one. Um, so I'm particularly fond of the 2009 Five Mountain because that one I totally felt like I nailed. Um, I don't believe I was given much instruction on what to look for, but having tasted the wines, I just knew that it needed needed to be somewhat similar, yet you still need to reflect the vintage um, because you need every year to be a little different. We're not, we're not making a soft drink. Um, it needs to show the vintage. Um, so when I go through and taste barrel by barrel, I'm looking, I have a three tick system. Three tick, and it's amazing, and it probably should be considered for reserve level. Um, two ticks, it's a shoe in One tick, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, and you have to write at least four descriptions. Um, when I first started, I believe we had 800 barrels. And there were some that were definitely, I didn't need to taste because they were definitely shoe-ins. If there were a blend of two vineyards, well, that's Willamette Valley. I don't need to worry about that for the single vineyards. Um, I always pick the single vineyard wines first. Um, and so as long as I make good notes and then I can go back and go, well, how many two tick barrels did I have? Is that enough for the blend? Yes. Um, is it around? And those early days, we used to look at 50% new oak. So as long as I had 50% new, um, then pull a sample of each barrel and taste it with Adam. Did it work? 
Could the vintage handle that much new oak? Yes, no. If it was a no, go back, knock out some of the um, new barrels and find some of the two ticks that weren't from the new barrels and see if that combination works together. Um, I always think of a full blend as a house. You need a solid base, well, check. I happen to think our fruit is all pretty solid. Um, you need a framework structure, and then you need some nuance, whether it's fruit, secondary characteristics, something else of interest, and overall there needs to be some oomph or some grip, a juiciness to get the person to go back for that second sip. Um, so one barrel doesn't necessarily have to have all of that. If it does, then it, it's res reserve level, and we do do a reserve. Um, but it needs to have one of those components. And um, I try to just do one vineyard a day, so I'm constantly thinking, okay, okay what, what did I taste earlier in the day? Do I feel like I've met the structure? And if I do, well, then I'm really looking for more barrels that have those nuances. And they need to have slightly different ones. Some have spice, some have fruit, um, some might be savory. Um, the more you get, the more complexity, the more fascinating it is in the glass. And that's the exciting part for me because at Harvest, we try all these little things. We might have um, six lots, six tanks from one vineyard, and we're going to try something different in each. Like it might be a later pick, it might be a different, um, maybe enzymes, maybe not enzymes, one yeast, two yeast, three yeast, maybe a little extended maceration um, at the end, not getting it to the press quite straight away. Uh, and then you get to choose your barrels. And um, every cooper does. Um, has their own house style. And then within that, were they having a good day that day when they made that barrel? Um, were they rocking it? Um, so your barrels themselves can give you structure, spice, similar to the um, yeast. Some give more structure, some give more spice, some give more length, um, some can give you fatness. And then they all have the different spice, bacon, bacon fat um, nuances. So then when you're putting the blend together, um, as adult cove, we can keep every um, tank separate all the way to barrel. So you have all of these layers of um, complexity and fun to put together. And um, that's what makes it the funnest. And I do wish everyone could do it with me because then they could see all the hard work they do. But um, you can't have too many cooks in the house. Um, and let's be honest, I can only do hour and a half a day and I need to do it early in the day so I can function in the, in the afternoon. It is an alcohol that we are working with. Um, so that is why. Interesting. That's one of the more interesting descriptions of blending I've ever heard. So following up on that, um, tell me about sort of creativity for you. What, how do you you obviously talk about shepherding the grapes. All the work is done, you're trying to shepherd the grapes into making great wine. So at what point do you kind of impart creativity into the process and what do you feel like are kind of your strengths when it comes to creativity in the winery? Um, choosing yeast, I think is a big one. Um, trying to decide um, how long it should stay in tank versus um, pressing it off the skins. And some of that is logistics. Um, you can only press so many in a, in a day, but you can put um, the order of preference out for that one. Other um, points of creativity, uh, I believe, are your barrel choices. I haven't had a lot of influence myself, um, but now as um, head winemaker pie career, I get to be a little bit more, um, I get to pick my barrels. Um, so I'm really excited to really look, dig into my coopers and I've, I've been wanting to for a couple of years go to that next level of coopers and vineyard and which ones marry better than others. Um, when, um, when a tank is in ferment and someone might say, oh, I, f I feel like that's stinky, um, you get a choice. Do you want to like push the yeast a little bit? Because sometimes when yeast are stressed, they can do some in, in interesting characters. And then sometimes those interesting characters are not what you want in your wine. So you, you get to have a choice there. I'm usually definitely more on the cleaner side, but that, that's an also point that you can affect it. Um, how many punch downs versus pump overs are you doing? I like to cut um, punch downs back um, uh, to every other day at, at two bricks. Um, that's the choice we get. I get to make. Um, what are some interesting other ones? Um, I think they would be the big ones, aside from the blending. Um, it would be fascinating to have um, 
Adam and I going to the barrel room separately and taster a lot. We haven't done that for a long time, ever, I don't think. And see what two different blends we would come together. I mean, we always, um, Adam gets final say on what the, what the blend will be, but it would be fascinating if I would be, if we'd be the same or different after working together for 17 years. So then with the finished product of, of the wine, what are you, what are the sort of the, the key characteristics, not even necessarily f from a wine perspective, but what are the key like reactions you would like to a bottle of Elko wine? What would tell you that the process you went through was correct and you came out with the answer you were hoping for? Um, that the consumer has an amazing smile of surprise, um, delight when they first smell it. Um, I still remember giving um, oh, my first wine that I made to my family and just having like one from Australia, so not thinking intense Pinots back early when I first started, different story today. Um, but just that surprise of the color and the intensity and the length that they can get in our wines uh, and the concentration of fruit. Um, hopefully they, they get all of that and, and can see that each of our labels are different from each other, that we're really showing the different soil characteristics coming through. So distinction and delight. So I want to back up a second to talk about sort of your initial impressions of Oregon, of the Oregon wine industry, and then I want to kind of take, uh, what, what did you think of the wines being made here uh, when you got here and of the people making them? I was stunned. Um, ignorance of Pinot Noir, I was stunned um, at the concentration and the color uh, and just the different flavors and that there could be so many from different areas. I was, um, I had very limited Pinot Noir experience and, um, and just nuances of areas. Um, hadn't really gotten to that level of understanding different um, sub-AVAs, having um, their own uniqueness. I've never, never looked at that thoroughly in Australia um, before I came here. Um, so I was stunned at how passionate people are about soil um, and how welcoming everyone was. I wouldn't Again, hadn't had huge experience. Um, I had done some tours when I worked um, in New Zealand at other wineries, but I was stunned at how um, wineries take their team to another winery and taste and tour, and then it would be reciprocated. And that, that amazed me, the, the community spirit. And then once I finally, within my first year or two, I um, got into a wine tasting group and I was just stunned at how open Everyone is like, I'd be like, oh, I have a little problem with this. I'm not quite sure what to do. And they'd be like, oh, you could do this, this, this. And it wasn't like, you should do this. It was like, hey, consider this. Um, everyone was very open and um, generous with their time and their thoughts. That, till that day, till this day, it still impresses me. And I do hope I emulate that as well. And with Alcove specifically, tell me about sort of working here and obviously uh, an old, one of the old family wineries in the area. Um, what was it like coming into a place that had been around as long as it had and had sort of the, the, the uh, reputation that it does? I think I got really lucky, really lucky. I, um, the Campbell family is so highly respected in the valley and I think perhaps that was part of why everyone was so generous with me. I was I was amazed at how many doors um, that opened up for me to be able to ask questions, um, have assistance. Um, that has been incredible. And just the opportunities to go to events and um, and be on committees. And um, I feel like I was instantly accepted by being um, brought into the uh, Elk Cove team. Uh, I would say I still kind of made sure I was had a good um, reason to be at the table, but um, I was pretty amazed at how I feel like my journey was fairly easy um, being welcomed so well into the Campbell family. It certainly helped the transition from Australia to America um, with um, Carrie Adams' wife as a backup for understanding the nuances. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just, it was amazing coming in and just realizing how many doors were open and respect, 
and how well the Campbell family was respected. And I was reminded again, um, just recently, becoming head winemaker by Groot, I've asked if I could expand the portfolio and try some um, Cabernet Shiraz or Merlot. And Adam reached out to um, a grower and instantly I have, I have options out there and I wasn't really sure having not been to Walla Walla or purchased fruit or knowing anyone from there how I was potentially going to find myself some Cabernet Shiraz or Merlot and again just um, being part of the Elk Cove and having such um, a wonderful owners and the relationships they have um, just super thankful. Well, let's talk about Pike Road. That's where we're heading next anyway. So tell us about the sort of the impetus to start the Pike Road brand uh, when it was started, what kind of the goal of it was in 2015-2016. The initial goal was just a, um, a Pike Road and Pinot Gris. That was it. Um, well, that was what I heard. Anyway, uh, and the goal was um, Adam really wanted to bring Elk Cove back to a state grown. So initially, when Elk Cove was found in 74, it was only made from fruit off this property at the winery. Um, when Adam came on board he, in the late 90s, he wished to expand the company. Um, he did that two ways. He, uh, his wife and um, the Campbell family went and bought Mount Richmond, um, but that takes a couple of years to come on board and be planted. Uh, so in addition to that, he started purchasing fruit from around the valley. Um, it's different AVAs that we don't um, grow fruit in um, that helped expand the brand, um, but wanting to bring it back to being uh, state only or state grown, Adam didn't wish to um, stop those um, relationships um, that we'd been that he'd had for 20 years. So therefore, we needed another avenue for that fruit to go. So um, Pike Road um, was born, so we could put all of our um, purchased fruit in there. It's a it's an amazing um, ability for Adam and I to be able to get fruit from further afield that is not at this stage logistically practical for us to buy and. Um, plant and maintain to send our crew down to Yola Amity is a significant drive and, and would take a lot of time for all of the different tasks that were required in the vineyard. So to be able to just, just, <laughs> to be able to purchase fruit from those areas um, is fun. Um, I'm really excited to work a little bit more with Yola Amity because I am, have had limited exposure and that, that um, that's area Sabavier fascinates me. Um, so that's the coolest part about Pike Road is that we can get parcels of different fruit that we wouldn't necessarily be able to have land in and grow ourselves and there um, and we get to experiment and have some fun with it and then sell it which is always good for the business. Um, Pike Road went and um, expanded once we um, set up a tasting room in Carlton and I can't recall um, that I think was in 2017. Um, and if you have a tasting room, you need more than two wines. Um, so you need a couple more Pinots, another white. And then if you have a tasting room, you need a tasting uh, wine club. And then you need a few more SKUs to be able to ship throughout the year. So then all of a sudden, it went from a two SKU wine brand to um, now it's nine. And um, so it is becoming its own entity. But it's all made here um, on the same facility and um, with the same team. Um, just me heading it now. And it's, it's super fun. You've got your Elk Cove, which is, um, it's got its style, beautiful style that it's developed over 50 years. And now Pike Road, um, we get to change things up a little bit and, and experiment and see what works and doesn't. Um, I haven't really found anything that doesn't work yet, which is great. Um, <laughs> so that is how we have Pike Road. So you mentioned sort of how it, how it grew. Uh, at what point did it become at what point was it broached that you become the winemaker there and, and how did that process sort of play out? So it's very new. It came about um, just over Christmas. I, um, I was keen to, to get my teeth in a little bit deeper. I feel like I um, do fairly well on all the logistics and the practical side of, um, of the winemaking here at Elk Cove, but I was keen to put my little stamp on it just a little bit more. Um, We've, uh, Adam and I have always made joint decisions on most things and obviously Boston owner he gets to make final which I totally respect and I really appreciated the mentoring with Adam but I, I'm really excited um, and thrilled that he's entrusting me to, um, 
to start really making those decisions and thinking a lot more. I think this is really going to um, push me further to be, I'm really excited to get in the vineyard, to look at, um, to try and find more vineyards and to really make all those decisions from the get-go, whereas I've typically just been part of the decisions in the winery. Mm -hmm. So again, getting back to the real full picture, I feel like I'm finally getting there. Um, and I'd say it's just been um, building up trust um, with Adam over the last 17 years. And the coolest part of it is that I'm not completely throwing the deep end. I've already been working with the fruit, but Adam is right there as a consultant. Um, obviously, it's still his brand. He's still the owner of Pike Road. Um, so I don't get to just willy-nilly, as any winemaker does not get to just willy-nilly do what they want. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty soft entry into being, uh, I hope that's how it is, um, head winemaker of Pike Road. And um, as I mentioned, I'm going to try uh, my hand at um, Cabernet Shiraz Merlot, which may end up as just a red blend, um, or maybe one day they'll become their own skews in a single variety. Um, but I, I'm very, very excited of all the possibilities. It's, it's a little limitless, which is pretty exciting. Well, obviously, it's, it's, it's still new, obviously, but how has it gone so far and how have sort of, how have you felt with the early decisions you've had to make? It's, um, it is very young. Um, pretty good. There are very few. It's, um, I'm not going to lie, it's been a little overwhelming trying to grasp all of the grower contracts um, and get the bottling done and um, we decided to change our winery software system so just threw in another little layer of complexity uh, but I, I think I think I'm in the lull and once the vines start growing I might have another little learning curve um, getting out there and balancing being in the vineyard and still getting wines ready and keeping the team going uh, we also went and hired a couple more people to assist um, so it's it's been a, a very interesting juggling act um, getting the new members of the team um, up to understand the level of what we do and how we do it and why we do it as well as um, yeah trying to grasp the vineyard side and I, I'm very excited I'm a little a little nervous about it all but um, so far what are we four months in okay <laughs> you've survived the first four months that's good that's good um, so you mentioned kind of um, wanted to kind of dig your teeth in and kind of put your stamp on on the brand so tell me over the kind of the coming years as you start to take this brand on more and more um, what kind of things are you looking for maybe as that might be like signatures of Pike Road or that might be something that people would know it for I think variety of vineyards I'm really excited to get um, as I mentioned we've worked a little bit with Yola Amity I'd like to get a little bit more down there um, and just explore the other um, sub-AVAs that I haven't even touched on. I, I think I only briefly worked with some McMinnville AVA fruit. I'd like to just see what else is out there and what we can express. And I'd love Pike Road to be known for, um, yeah, the variety of vineyards and just expressing the different AVAs. Um, we came up with a, a really cool concept of a soil series where we try and highlight a different soil series each vintage that's extra amazing. Um, so I'd like to be known for just really showcasing the vineyards, mm -hmm. the soil, and the area. So I want to back up for a second to, to 2020 and talk about that, that year for a second. Obviously, uh, as the logistics and organizing person, you had a lot to do in 2020. So tell us about harvest that year and um, sort of dealing with the difficulties and challenges that are being thrown at you. How did that year go for Elk Cove and for Pike Road and how did, what was sort of your role in getting the team through it? Getting the team together was super challenging. Um, borders were closed. Uh, we regularly get international staff for harvest. So just the hiring process was, um, was challenging. Um, we ended up getting an all-green crew, so people who had never worked um, in the cellar before. Well, bar one last, so she had worked um, in an Australian winery, a small one, that she, she had touched a pump before she came. Um, so that, that was fascinating. I was um, with my um, family. Uh, my son had lung issues really young, and he was only 16 months when COVID hit, so we'd totally, like, 
took took everyone, my, my other son also, out of school and just kind of clamped down and tried to bubble in the house. And um, I was trying to still work here and work at home with the kids in a winemaker. You can't take the tanks or the wine home. Really tricky. Um, so trying to just juggle that and then start figuring out how to hire people and then how was I going to switch to being six days a week from being three, 12, 14, 15 day, hour days um, was, was fascinating. So you had the family component trying to figure out how to keep them safe and then hiring all of these new people and then how was I going to train them indi individually because keeping everyone six feet apart um, was was fun <laughs> and making pods and figuring out where they were going to live um, but we got we got all through that and we got them here and everyone turned up which was amazing and then um, as we know we had the fire and so we're already wearing masks but now we have everyone's wearing like super thick masks to try and make sure we can breathe and making sure everyone feels healthy let alone COVID healthy um, we picked quite a bit before the, um, the smoke and we are further, and most of our vineyards are further north. So we were um, very fortunate in 2020 that we had limited effects. Um, and then trying to figure out what to do with any fruit that did come in potentially with smoke tank, because you don't really know until much later down if it's going to sh show itself or not. I, uh, I had a limited bandwidth. I've got to be honest, I was a bit more logistics, keeping everyone healthy, COVID-wise, keeping everyone healthy, um, smoke-wise. Um, but again, there was that whole Oregon community where everyone was sharing everything. Um, and Adam was really on it, trying to find out methods. Um, we pretty much just kind of tweaked a few things, less skin contact. Um, because the smoke gets stuck in the skins. Um, and then went to barrel. It, it was a low yield of a year, which was a plus and a minus. Um, so we didn't have a huge amount to deal with. Um, and then we got it to bottle and it was, I mean, every vintage, I'm always happy when it goes to bottle and it's gone. Um, but it was just, there was just so much other stuff. I couldn't get into my vintage bubble because I was worried about the family. I was worried about people getting sick. I couldn't just immerse like I like to do every year, which doesn't always work with the family. Anyway, um, so it was a challenging year, but it was just different challenges. The people and yeah, the weather made it tricky. Um, but we did it. And I think we made some pretty good wine with all those challenges, but we were very fortunate. What were the biggest takeaways for you from that? Coming out of it, you mentioned kind of the Oregon community and everyone sort of dealing with smoke together. What were the biggest takeaways for you as you look ahead to the future of, with another event like that possibly happening again? Uh, I think the camaraderie. Everyone's pretty quick to share because we want all the wine in the Willamette Valley to shine because um, then we all, we all win if we all make good wine. So I think we're all... Um, pretty keen to um, to always be ready to do our group chats and um, then the synopsis after harvest, like what worked, what didn't work. We did a lot of that, a lot of tasting, um, a lot of ongoing trials to see did that really work, did it only work for six months, did it work for 12 months. Um, just, just reinforced, I guess, what we all really did know, that we're all here together and we're here as, like I mentioned, we, we want everyone to shine because that lifts the whole valley up. You mentioned earlier in the interview and kind of came back when you talked about smoke, you talked about sort of the experiments and the, the things you like to try. Tell me about um, how those have become part of sort of your standard yearly uh, cycle of, of winemaking. What kind of experiments are you, are you working on now or have you worked on in the past that have become part of the program? And how do you sort of gauge success when you're looking at winemaking experiments? <laughs> uh, the gauging of success is usually right at blending. You can, you can look at things and get really excited when it goes to barrel, but it, you really need to see the full evolution of the wine's life. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, um, I don't do anything too crazy. Um, initially coming out of university, like, right, we're gonna try this and this and this and this. And Adam was like, you know, let's just think about all of that. And he didn't damper my ideas, um, but I have definitely learned to be a little bit more mellow and to read the situation, not just go crazy. Um, yeast. I love trying different yeast. Um, and I enjoy looking at um, microlocks. 
and just some of the other um, fascinating tools on small lots. Um, the, the most exciting experiment we have the interns do every year for the last, since 2018, no, 2017 was the first year, we give them seven tons and they get to do whatever they want. The deal is they need to do it as a team, which is its own little fun watching um, experiment that they, um, we've had whole cluster, usually the majority will always go whole cluster, um, non-intervention and just let it go because um, that is quite the extreme from us and we always try to give them a control tank of this is what we would normally do so you can compare and contrast. Um, we've, since the team has gotten bigger, we've decided we give them two tanks that they can split up if the, the team can't quite decide. Um, but we've had um, a white Pinot made, um, red Pinots, um, last year's team split it in two and they made a rosé with stem contact. Um, so it's, it's fascinating watching these younger people usually um, with all their exciting ideas because they've generally travelled a little bit more extensively than me that they're like, okay, we're going to try and make this style. And so we get them to do a tasting beforehand and we pull wines from the, the area or the style they're looking for and then get them to taste. And I get to listen to what are they trying to pick up, what are they wanting it to be, and then listen to how they're making the decisions and we're pretty much whatever they like, but just can't ferment in barrel because we don't have the capacity to do that. And that I find fascinating. Um, one year they did a cold soak yeast because I didn't want to do any sulfur. And I really liked that. So yeah, I've been like, okay, let's, let's try a little bit more cold soak yeast and see what happens. Um, so it's really fun to get an instant pop of energy and new ideas on our fruit um, and see what works, what doesn't. and. They don't all get to see it because um, they're just here for the 12 weeks. Um, if they're local, they get to come back and taste and I still get to put the blend together. Pretty much once it gets to barrel, then we get to tweak it. Um, but some of them don't like to add uh, much acid and so we let it go for as long as we can and then they're like, no, now can you tell it's fat? We need to tighten it up so we're going to add a little acid. And um, that alone, letting it go and then adding it, it's not our normal protocol. We would, we would tweak it early generally earlier is better but it's fun to see it go and go oh that's why we do it earlier so I um, I love every year I love the um, harvest crews harvest crew that's what we named the um, label to see what they do and to be reminded oh yeah that's why we do it this way it's not a negative it's just a preference um, so that for me is the most exciting so along those lines, uh, you mentioned that <coughs> hiring, finding, hiring and training the interns was a big part of your role, and has been a big part of your role. Um, what do you feel like are the sort of the biggest things you try to impart to them during one the time here? And what are the sort of the success stories you've had from people who've come through uh, as interns at Alcove? Um, I try to impart a knowledge of everything, or at least the mechanics of it, whether or not they grasp the big picture. It kind of depends on the person and how many harvests they've had to where they're at. I find the, the first couple of vintages you're really just getting the mechanics down and once you've got that then you can broaden it. That's my experience. Um, so hopefully letting them leave with a knowledge of how to do everything, like how you hook up a pump for a racking versus a transfer um, versus a pump over. Um, so the mechanics, um, a, a little bit more knowledge of winemaking and the why, um, if they're ready for that. I do really try to help them with the why we do this. Um, and a little more knowledge of like, what, where does this fit for you? Like, do you want to keep doing your harvest to harvest to harvest and, and try and encourage them to think about the bigger picture? Like, where do you want to aim? Um, if they're ready for that, and again, usually first harvest, you're not thinking that. So a little tailored to where they are in their journey um, and to remind them that it can be fun. It can be really, really fun. Usually they have so much energy that's not a, not a factor. Um, but tightening up their skills. Mm -hmm. So they definitely leave for their next place with more skills and um, a higher understanding of what they entered with. Mm -hmm. And have you seen success from that? Oh, yes. Um, there are several, so I love it when an intern um, stays in contact. So there are several who have become winemakers in New Zealand um, or they've moved, um, was there a couple? Yep, no, Washington, um, Arizona. Uh, the ones that 
that get through and make um, make it to assistant winemaker or winemaker. Not that if they leave the industry, I think it's a negative either. Um, but success is that they keep in contact. Um, and if within the um, harvest team that they kept in contact with each other. So there was um, a couple um, a couple of guys, I think, oh, mid-2000s, who were in each other's weddings. And I think, great, if you can be living together and working together seven days a week, living together six days a week, working together, and still be friends afterwards. And I feel like it's not all on me, but I feel like we gave them a great experience here at Elk Cove. So yeah, keeping in contact with me, with each other, and um, yeah, still keen and still loving Pinot Noir from Oregon. Well, the sort of last question on that track is about Pinot Noir, so I'm glad you brought that up. So you mentioned coming here with very little experience of Pinot Noir and a very different impression based on Pinot Noirs you'd had at that point. So tell me about learning to work with Pinot Noir and learning to love it, what have been sort of the biggest sort of lessons when it comes to the mechanics of it and when it comes to the, the treatment of it? Um, and how have you seen Pinot Noir here at, at Alcove and, and in Oregon more generally um, change in the time you've been here? I think learning to be um, gentle um, with Pinot Noir, again, those seeds, and just um, making sure you get a good temp at ferment. I find if you can't we, we like to peak at, um, getting all my Celsius and Fahrenheit, 86 Fahrenheit, we like to peak at and then bring it down to 80. And I find if you, if you can't initially get it up there, you're going to have a green note in your wine. And I'm not, um, I don't find that marries well with the Elk Cove um, wines. So temperature, really acknowledging that temperature is a thing, um, being gentle with it, and then giving it a little patience. Like you get it into barrel and it shuts down. And to be fair, maybe this is similar for all red varieties. Um, just giving it a little bit of time to um, calm down, settle, and then to be able to begin that blending. So um, yeah, temperature would be the big one and um, being gentle. And, has, and how have you seen Oregon Pinot Noirs change or have you seen them change since you got here? I think we're doing a little less um, New York them initially, like here, particularly here at Elko, we used to um, start with 50% and then go up or down on the vintage, but typically we're starting at 30 or 40%. So I've seen us do a little bit, little less new oak. And, um, but then you've got to query yourself, is that because of the seasons that Mother Nature is throwing us or the general trend of the winemaking style? So I do think they all marry together. Um, and they're a little more fruit forward. So, and I think maybe that's the temperature of our ferments and Mother Nature is giving us in summer. We've just got a little bit more fruit to play with and concentration um, from the grapes and perhaps we had when it was a little cooler. Still a cool climate, but when it, our summers were a little cooler. <laughs> so we talked earlier about your sort of initial impressions of Oregon wine. Um, tell me about, outside of Pinot Noir now, um, what other changes you've seen? How, how has the industry changed since you got here? And what does the industry look like in 2023 to you? It's a lot bigger. <laughs> there are a lot more people um, making wine, which I think is amazing. Um, I love that there are so many expressions out there that um, all the winemakers are making um, for their different labels. I love that there are still small labels. Um, we're not getting um, big and bold. Um, I don't foresee it's the the, the people making wine in Oregon, I don't, I don't see that changing a great deal from the original pioneers who were doing it because I loved it. Um, Pinot Noir is a bit of a labor of love. There's a lot of need in the vineyards. Um, you never know what Mother Nature is going to give you. Um, we may not all become super billionaire people from um, this wine industry, as you might see with other wine industries. Um, so I think we're always going to have the, um, the smaller producers, the boutique producers. Uh, I don't see the big companies getting insanely big. I think they are going to grow because they're a business, that's their goal. Um, I think we might see a few more international buyers come in, but I think the whole pioneer Oregon spirit is always going to remain. It'll be fun to see what, um, if we see any third generations come in. We're seeing a lot of second generations. Adam's the second generation. It'll be quite fun to see um, 
in the next 10 to 20 years um, if his kids or the cousins will come into the company um, and likewise for the other second generation families. Um, I reckon we'll start seeing more second generation families in 22 years. So I think we're just going to keep expanding but at the same style and tiers that we already have. I think they're all just going to expand. Is there anything else you see for the future of the Oregon wine industry? Do you see, are there things you're excited about that are coming down the road? Or are there things that you're concerned about coming down the road? Mm, climate change is always a concern. Um, well, I hope that we don't become super conglomerate corporate. That's always, that is always a little bit of a worry. Though I think that's a worry for a lot of people, so I'm optimistic. But that is always a concern. Um, and exciting things. I think there's just going to be more um, collaboration and I think we still have vineyards to plant so there's still new, new spots, new plots to explore and make wine from so I, I see that we'll always be experimenting, there will always be a new, new wine to make and um, the variety is still going to be there. So I see lots of good things, very optimistic. <laughs> good, good. Um, we talked a little about your future already, obviously, just, just taking over Pike Road and all the things there. So tell me a little bit else, uh, a little bit more about your future, uh, both in wine and out. Are the things you're looking forward to, things on the horizon uh, from a winemaking perspective or from a personal perspective that you're excited about? Um, for career-wise, I'm really excited to see um, how I meet the challenge of being a head winemaker. Um, making some different um, wine from different varieties that I've never explored with, and then um, very excited to see how I can expand the Pike Road brand um, and keep all the quality for Elk Cove and Pike Road still at the same level. Um, so I'm super excited about the challenges that are ahead of me um, and just really excited to see where I can take it and um, when I really am making the decisions. Um, and then I'm very excited, I guess, aside from work, just to keep expanding my palate. Um, I feel like I kind of took a little bit of a break from doing lots of tastings, um, having kiddos. And um, so I'm really excited to expand that and to really get a better appreciation and understanding of um, wine around the world. So I'm um, looking at doing my WSET um, level three. And I'm very curious about the level four diploma. Um, so I'm excited to do a little more education um, and then, yeah, see where I can grow as being a winemaker for the Pike Road brand. And the last question for you, um, to this point, what are you proudest of or what do you consider your greatest achievement? Mm. Getting here. I think everything up to here. Um, staying with the one company and seeing it grow and never being bored. Um, and then achieving, achieving head winemaker of a Pike Road that um, professionally would be um, one of my biggest, my biggest success. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover today that you'd like to cover? No, I think that's everything. Excellent. It's um, yeah, I love my career, but I could not have done it without my family and all of their support. Um, my husband, who becomes a uh, harvest widow, uh, and the kids, um, just very appreciative of their understanding. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your stories with us, sharing the space with us. And we have a group over here enjoying their wine here, so we'll, we, we can let them talk. So <laughs> thank you so much, and we'll let you off the hook. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.